This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, guys, I think it's uh, even a profound thought to think of leading into this particular message with laughter in our soul. Because what I'm about to cover oftentimes is one of the great stumbling blocks for many of us in the church. And that is the realities of what comes with following Christ, which is the requisite persecution. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, many of us are hoping that because we live in North America, there is some type of out to that. Like, well, that was just talking about back then, and it doesn't necessarily apply to us. Yet, if you take an honest glance at Scripture, you recognize that it's timeless, and everything about it applies to every single person in every single culture. And in fact, our culture, just as much as many cultures in the past, has the residue and the kernel of uh, anti-godness that is cultivated within it. It's constantly at work. It's called the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age is always the same. It is anti-Christ. The devil, the prince of the power of the air, is seeking to undermine the very truth that we uphold. So we live in a culture, just like any culture, that is constantly being worked on by the devil to undermine the very things that we represent This is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. We should not expect this world to supply us comfort. We should recognize that as Christians, we are here on a very specific mission, and that mission does not necessarily come with the promise of physical comforts, but it does come with the promise of heavenly comforts. We will never be abandoned. He will never leave us nor forsake us, and he will supply us the grace that is sufficient for whatever we could possibly face. When I was growing up, we had a series of, uh, it was in the early 70s, I was born in 1970, but in the 70s there was a movement towards end times teaching, unlike maybe ever before, even though that's always been a, a theme. And what came out of the church in many of its multimedia dimensions was a lot of things that struck fear, especially in young children. And so any of you that are my age would have probably remembered that. I was around seven or so when some of these big blockbuster Christian movies came out, and it struck fear in me. I mean, I I would have night terrors. Why? Because I was reflecting upon the end? Let's just get something straight. The end is not our end. I don't know whoever conned us into thinking that. The end, if we want to call the end of this age, is merely a beginning for us. It's the end of the devil's reign. (laughs) Why would we fear that? He's the one that's going to be judged. Those that are in Christ, hey, we only have his presence to look forward to. It's a convolution that took place. In other words, it was twisted to the point where we were seeing Christians going to their end screaming. 
That has never been that way all throughout history. Christians do not face their end screaming. They face their end singing. There is a big difference, and we have been conned in our generation into thinking that persecution and suffering are the grand negatives. And as a result, we need to once again regain back the ancient understanding that the Christians throughout the ages have held, which is this is where God's grace is most made manifest. You want to know the presence of God? Endure suffering. Endure difficulty. As Paul says, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in my distresses, in my necessities. Why would he take pleasure in that? Because it's in those situations. That's the stage through which God reveals his glory, his grandness, and his grace. In other words, these are not the weak points in our life in the natural sense as much as they are the strength points in the spiritual sense. We do not emphasize the natural as Christians. We emphasize what God is doing. And as a result, we can endure all things for him. So as I walk through this, I know it touches on some territory that is very delicate for many of us. It's the type of topic that many of us will avoid at all costs. Like, for instance, any of us can subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. It's free. But not all of us want to. What is the pause that we have? Why wouldn't we want to know about our suffering brothers and sisters around the world so that we could pray for them? Because most of us don't like to meditate upon such things. We don't like to think that it is actually possible that Christians can and will suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a pause within us, and I want to put my finger on that and say, do you want to continue to pause, or would you like to have the boldness of soul to recognize that we as Christians need to be built to face any difficulty with joy. So that our lens, the mental lens through which we appropriate any challenge in our life is actually a happy one. If you were told today that you were going to be fed to lions in the morning, what would your natural man say? Maybe, maybe I shouldn't even ask you that. Because I, I sort of know what your natural man would say. It would start screaming. It would look for ways to escape. However, Ignatius, who was discipled by the Apostle John, rejoiced. Mm. He rejoiced. He was told he was going to be fed to the lions. And he said, my salvation has finally come. And he, con- he considered the lions his friends. For they were the ones that were going to lead him into the presence of the one he loved more than his life. Is that the way you think about lions? <laughs> That isn't the way we are programmed in this earth according to the natural man or Adam. Adam does not think that way. But Christ is willing to forego any earthly pleasures so that he can see redemption take place. It is for the joy that is set before him that he endures. You see, do you have a joy that is set before you? And so let's begin. The perilous mission. I had the word dangerous. I thought it was too predictable. The dangerous mission just sounded, you know, like that's been spoken before. But the perilous mission, perilous, I like that. That's a nice sounding word. It means dangerous for those of you that don't know. The perilous mission, training for radical evangelism. So as a church, God is putting his finger on something afresh. Leslie said something to me this morning. We were talking about this theme. And she said... uh, Sounds like you're, you're preaching aggressive Christianity again. And I said, yep. Uh, and so we were talking about the book. Catherine Booth has a book called Aggressive Christianity. 
And then she said, I just read a quote from Amy Carmichael the other day, and she hasn't gotten it for me yet, but it'll have to come out in a future sermon. And she said, the church needs to be ready. Whenever the church enters into aggressive Christianity, the devil will come against it with all his guns. He, he knows that there's Christianity, but what he will resist with every bit of his might is when Christianity turns aggressive. When we begin to go after souls and we will not take no for an answer, that is when the devil awakens at a heightened level. So as Amy Carmichael said, the church has to know that. If you're going to become aggressive with your faith, you need to recognize that the devil will come at you. We don't need to fear that because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, but we should not be blind and ignorant of the fact that we are engaged in a battle. Training for radical evangelism. The word radical is a dangerous word, I know, but what else are we going to call it? If we just say evangelism, then all of us think we're already doing that. It's like, well, I exist as a Christian. I'm shining light. I'm salt on this earth. Well, I'm not saying you're not. However, all of us in here, and this is why I say this is a message that we're all at already. We know that there is a discrepancy between where we're at now and where we ought to be in regards to sharing our faith. And most of us in here, we genuinely are esteeming the version of Christianity that's all in, all out, that is willing to share in the most difficult situations, to stand up in the midst of an arena and shout, Jesus, even though everyone in there is like some atheist gathering. We'd be willing to do that in our mind. However, in action, there's a palsy in our legs. There's a stammer in our tongue. There's something that is missing in the machinery to get from here to here. And even as we enter into this training in evangelism, we need to allow the Spirit of God to address that. Just to know in our mind what we ought to do isn't the great need of our church. It is the power to do it. We know that we need to be bear witness of Jesus Christ. We know it better than probably most churches on earth. However, there is a palsy and a stammer. There is a weakness in our humanity, and I don't think it's bad that we're seeing it. You see, when we see that, I just want you to know it's not just in you. If you've been feeling like the one odd man out, like everyone is so bold in this church. No, everyone's so cowardly in this church. Now, I know we have certain personalities in here that make the rest of us feel, you know, because they're just like, let's go preaching. You know, we're like, ah, praise God for that. However, for the most part, we all suffer from the same issue. And there are certain situations where I'm extremely bold and most people aren't. However, I would say there's other situations where other people are bold and I'm not. Does that make sense? We all sort of have our impediments. And if we just acknowledge that, instead of trying to act bigger than we are and try and hide the fact that we have that cowardliness, I think God can really touch it. And I think he can breathe upon these embers that are very real. And he can lift us out of the mediocrity and the mire of that lassitude that laziness of soul that is passive with a dying world around us. How could we be passive? Do we not recognize where they are headed? Do we not care? And there's something in us that goes, I don't know if I do care. You do care. That's why we're here. We desire the glory of Jesus Christ. Don't let the devil con you otherwise. We just need to be equipped. A happy glossary for the true church. 
So you notice how I called it a happy glossary? I didn't just call it a glossary. I called it a happy glossary very purposely. I put a little adjective in front of it to help us along. Six words that bring a smile to the face of the twice-born. So these are happy words. So what you're going to expect is joy, peace. The underground church, it's more than a word, it's, it's, I don't, but it's a title. Okay, The underground church. That's the biblical church in the midst of hostility, which meets in secret, shares the gospel no matter the costs, and is always ready to suffer in mind and body in order to love others and bring glory to their king. This is also known as, which might be a better term for us, the fellowship of the burning heart. Those that don't make their decisions based on the cost it will mean to their lives. Most Christians around the world that live in persecuted nations actually are not a part of the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. There's a whole bunch, high numbers, in, in persecuted countries that live according to the status quo and keep their Christianity in a box lest they receive the harsh treatment that they know will come to anyone who dares get it out of that box. This is where most people all around the world function. The ones we esteem when we hear of a persecuted nation and we see a man or a woman rise up and preach the gospel boldly and suffer persecution for it, we stand in awe. We represent a culture that does not have the same cost when we share the gospel, and yet we are possibly more timid than any other country. The underground church, a martyr, one who suffers greatly, often unto death for the sake of Christ. Also known as the ultimate heroes of the church. Suffering, extreme difficulty, pain or hardship. Also known as the ultimate athletic training program for the soul. Number four, torture. The act of inflicting pain on someone to get them to give up secret information or change viewpoints. This is what the devil will do. This is what his minions do to Christians. It's happened throughout history and I... By the way, these are not fun words, I know. I'm, I'm trying to make them happy. And for whatever reason, I feel like you guys are not happy as I'm sharing them. A.K.A. the great showdown. This is the ultimate picture of light against darkness. Remember when Jesus is brought in? He was tortured. He was. We don't usually use that word, but he was. He was tortured, and the cross is a form of torture. And torture is meant to break a man. It is meant to cause him to cower so that the enemy can demonstrate and say, see, is this all your Christ can do? And yet, throughout the ages, men and women who have been brought into torture have not bent and have not broken. And yet, I don't know about you, but I feel so breakable. I feel so fragile in and of myself. If I'm leaning on myself, this isn't going to work. There has to be something else from the outside that works inside of Eric, that works inside of us as a body to enable us to go through this showdown and win. Number five, brainwashing. The act of making someone adopt radically different beliefs by using systematic and often forcible pressure, a.k.a. the grand stage for grace. Every single one of these words, like I said, we either bring them up or we act like they don't exist. This has been the devil's tactic throughout the ages. This is how he works against believers. The fact that we are in North America right now and we actually have laws that protect Eric Ludy getting up here and talking about these things openly is somewhat amazing. It really is. 
The history of the church has not allowed this type of free speech on these types of topics. And so as a result, the fact that we have that freedom, let's speak boldly, let's be prepared so that we can be emissaries to help others understand how to walk in triumph with a big smile on our face. The whole way through this life, there is no downer. Everything I'm talking about, I know it sounds really bad. And yet that's because you're still thinking like Adam. There's a better way of thinking. You know, repentance in, in its basic understanding of the Greek is like a changing of the mind towards something. Yes, it is a turning from something. It's also a changing of a mental framework towards something. Repent of your Adam thinking. You look at these words, you go, oh, no, God, spare me from it. Instead of recognizing, it's like seeing a, you know, a weightlifting uh, exercise. God, spare me from it. And what are you doing? You're moving away from that which would make you stronger. You see, God has built you physically in this natural realm to be able to endure great weights. But unless you exercise that, you could never show that. The same thing, in fact, more so spiritually, you were designed to carry great weights. But if you never receive the trials that come your way, you will never show that fact. You see, we're afraid of trials. We're afraid of difficulty. And as a result, we remain in a weakened, pasty-faced state. Our spiritual man is meant to be invigorated through exercise, which means when we see a trial, we grab a hold of it and we do some curls with it. We engage with this with a smile instead of a frown and a fear. there's, There's a word that needed to be thrown in. Jesus, the one who builds the underground church, constructs faithful martyrs, gives power to his followers to endure sufferings with triumph, face any any in all forms of torture with unshakable confidence and survive even the most intense brainwashing tactics with stunning grace. He's also known as the amazing savior. You see, you weave those things together. If you take those first five without six, boy, that's a depressing list. <laughs> what are we doing it for? Why are we going through all this? You see, we can't do it without Jesus. Jesus is the key. Now, I gave you this glossary on purpose because I'm going to read a little Thing to you that uses these words quite plentifully. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 6. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. I think, you know, here we are the beloved, right? I think we think it's strange. I, I do. I've brought this up many times. However, we're not supposed to consider it strange. The fiery trial that is trying us. As though some strange thing happened to you. What is this? Why am I going through this? Well, didn't you say you were a Christian? Yeah, why am I going through this? Well, do not consider it strange. This this is what Christians go through. Just like a branch being grafted into a vine. What's going to happen? It's going to be pruned. Why? So it can bear more fruit. The the branch shouldn't go, hey, why? Why are you pruning me? It's just what happens to a good branch. If a branch is truly abiding in the vine, it's going to be cut back. It's going to be pruned so that it can bring forth that life. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The word makarios means supremely happy. Supremely happy are you when you are reproached For the name of Christ, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I want that. I want the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon me. Well, you need some more reproaches. You need to be reproached 
for Christ. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, I'm going to read this again. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. This is good stuff. In Scripture, you all have to admit, reading the New Testament, suffering, persecution is never spoken of as a bad thing. Ever. In fact, you see the exact opposite. These guys are always singing and rejoicing. They get in prison and they start singing songs. This is not the way we think of it. You see, we have have Adam thinking that we need to be set free from. My encounter with the old Romanian. So on Tuesday night... I shared something, and you're going to notice some similarities because this is what's been burning in me. Last Monday, was it? Monday night, uh, we had uh, the movie Tortured for Christ uh, was, had its one day uh, in the theaters, and I know many of you, you went to that, but the significance in my life of Richard Wormbrandt's story is quite deep. Uh, Years and years ago, I don't know what this would be, 26 years ago or so, my brother came to visit me in Michigan, and he had a video cassette, and God was dealing with both of us. I had given my life to Christ, then he gave his life to Christ, and both of us were wanting the real thing. And so we'd gone on the mission field together, we'd gone to Eastern Europe, been to Romania, Bulgaria, to share the gospel, seen amazing things. So we come back, he knew my sensitivity to Romanians, and so he brought out this video. It was, it was a copy of a copy of a copy. It was one of the worst videos I've ever seen as far as quality. And that there's something profound about that even, that God used such poor quality and in and through it shined forth one of the most majestic pictures I had ever seen. I didn't know at the time, but the man's name was Richard Wormbrandt. He didn't have any shoes on because of the many tortures upon his feet when he was in prison for 14 years. And so he approaches the stage, and he's sitting down on the stage, and he starts talking. And I'd never seen this before. I'd never seen the real version of what I'd read about in the Bible and what I'd read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs, what I'd read about in Christian history. It's real, and it's today. This guy was alive. I mean, I was watching him. He was actually talking. And yes, the video's stunk quality-wise, but what was that? There was a jewel, a diamond in this rough. And I remember telling God that I would do anything to get what that man had. How did that man get it? 14 years of prison and suffering. Eric, do you really want it? You answer that question. If you knew you'd have to go through what Richard Wormbrandt went through to get that love, that power, that reality of Christ in a man, what would you be willing to give up to get it? So you'll recognize the tenor of my Christianity has always sort of hearkened back to that. I want it. Well, Eric, that's going to cost you. I recognize that. And it's never easy to accept that cost when you're thinking as Adam. As Adam, we're like accountants, and we're always grading how much we need to give and how much it's going to cost us and what we get back in return. Isn't it funny how we think? It's like, well, what do I get out of this? Well, how does this benefit me? When you finally start thinking as a Christian, you think how it benefits his name, how it benefits his glory. And what's interesting is you gain far more. 
when you finally forget how much you get out of it, or if you get anything out of it at all, and you finally think about what he gets out of it because he's deserving, then you get it. (laughs) That's when you get the reward. That's when you get the grace. That's when you get the life abundant. So I encountered the old Romanian. Uh, My study of the Waldensians, I mentioned this uh, this week too on Tuesday night. So back in this time, I was studying suffering. I, I know it's a strange thing to suffer, but suffer, study. That's sort of what it was like when I was studying it too. It was a form of suffering because the whole while I was trying to study my way out of Adam thinking. I don't know if any of you have ever tried that, where if you study the text enough, it'll somehow lift you out of the thinking. Like read bold and courageous acts in scripture and suddenly you'll become bold and courageous. However, that isn't how it works, but I was trying to sort of get rid of my cowardice by reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, by reading Martyr's Mirror, by reading Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. And I was still a coward. I mean, this was, it was causing my soul to tremble, but I wanted it so much. So I was studying the Waldensians, which is a people group that lived in the Italian uh, Alps uh, during the Dark Ages. And they lived in caves, but they had the scriptures the whole while. And so the the Roman Catholic Church had gone apostate through this little stretch of time. And they, I mean, they were wicked. That's the only thing you can say. I mean, they were, they were bad news. If anyone ever shared the gospel, they would be butchered. It wasn't just killed. They were butchered publicly. And so it's what a strange thing for the church <laughs> to be doing. And that's why the Waldensians are so important. They're also known as the Vidoy, if you study Christian history. And so there's this whole time period where they were the lone messengers of the truth of Scripture. They were the lost, in in the midst of the dark ages, they were the light shining in the midst of the darkness. I mean, truly profound. And their stories are so moving. But they would go into the countryside knowing full well that if they are caught, they're dead. And they're not just dead, they're dead in great pain. They're going to suffer greatly. And the, the, the suffering that these men went through, I mean, this crazy book that I read on it went into such great detail on it. I mean, I was just like swallowing hard the whole book. Uh, And these men would go out in twos, and they would go out. One was an older man. He was known as a barb. And the younger man who was in training under the barb would go with them. And they would go into towns, and there was always sort of a threshold to the city limits. And this is where the young man would always pause and be like, I don't know if I can go. And that's why they went with an older man. And the older man would take his hand and pull him across that threshold. Say, follow me. You see, the older man had been led across that threshold into that realm of fear, into that realm where most of us would melt. He had been there many times before, so he had acclimated to it. The young man, like us, we could just describe ourselves as the young man in the story. We have, we're a generation that doesn't have the older man to carry us across that threshold, to show, it, show us how it is done, because this isn't just street preaching. This is risking your life. They went out as, what was the term, merchants. And they would have all these goods, and they would go into homes, or they'd go up to doors, and if someone was interested, they could go into their home and sit down, and they would go through their goods, and they'd be praying the whole time, God, are they ones that you want us to share the gospel with? Because if they shared the gospel with an informant, someone who would turn them in, they're dead. And so they're praying the whole time, and so they would get to a certain point where they would look at each other, and nod, and it's like they knew they were supposed to go on, and so they would share of something even more valuable than anything they have, and it was called the pearl of great price. And basically, it would cost them everything to get it. But they talked of its beauty, 
And if the people were interested, they would share Jesus with them, risking their life the entire while. Now, the level of willingness for someone to do that, when here we in our culture could go into a home at any day of the week, and even if someone informed the culture, yeah, there was a Christian, they actually shared with me the gospel. What is the worst that can happen? You can fill in the blank. In other words, they risked everything to share the gospel. And that needs to weigh on us as we go through this. My first preaching experience. So I was invited out. I, I think we were, we were doing an event in Spokane. And I look at that, when I used to travel and speak on relationships, I don't look at that as preaching. When I was asked to speak for a church, which was, this is the first time, it was in Spokane, Washington. I think Leslie and I had been married a year or two. Uh, I was praying about what I should preach on. And there was one thing that was so deep in my soul, and that was martyrdom. And so I got up, <laughs> poor church, uh, and I preached on martyrdom. My very first time I preached a sermon was on martyrdom. And, uh, I mean, this, this church is just sort of staring back like, what in the world? It was intense. It was, I mean, it's like, this is what we all need to be prepared for. I don't know that I, I could even say at that time I was prepared for it. But, again, I felt like the more I studied it, or maybe if I spoke about it, I would, it would make me ready. There's only one way to be ready, and that's to know Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one that carries us through. And that's the one thing I had to learn as I went through all these things. So the movie on Monday night, uh, Tortured for Christ, if you, I, I still haven't gotten feedback from Voice of the Martyrs of if we can do a special screening here uh, of the movie, but I'd sort of like to invite our entire church to see it. Those of you that did see it, uh, it's, it's a profound picture of something that's hard to describe uh, unless you, you see it. And... It's beautiful. That's, that's another thing that I could say. It, there's something beautiful about seeing someone suffer well. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but when you see it, it gives you courage. It gives you hope, and it lifts you up. That's why the stories of the martyrs have always been told. It's like, it seems like a strange thing to meditate upon. People dying? No, no, no. It's not people dying. It's people living. They're truly living. And no matter when they face death with that type of bravery, that type of courage, it's supernatural. Because no one does that. In our natural man, we cower before pain. These men boldly enter it. These women run to it. What is that? It speaks something to our soul. And so the story of Richard and Sabina Wormbrandt is a deep part of Leslie's and my life and heritage. So to see that movie was a precious thing for us. And it's obviously set my, my thinking throughout this entire week. But you have to realize where we're at as a church. We're beginning an emphasis in evangelism. And that movie isn't, to me, it isn't just about suffering. I know the title is rather intimidating. It's like if you want to get people to come to a movie, you don't call it Tortured for Christ. But that is the name of his best-selling book, so hey, I guess we'll keep that title. Uh, It's not just about a man who was tortured. It's a man who bore witness of Jesus Christ in the most difficult circumstances. It's an evangelism movie as far as I'm concerned. It's real evangelism, what we could call radical evangelism, or I could just call it normal evangelism, but that might offend us. This is what it's supposed to be. Do you understand that there's a lost and dying world? This man loved the Russian people. They're not very lovely. 
The atheistic communism is a very dour and dark thing, and it is angry and mean and hateful. To love that, to love the people in it, I'm not saying he loved atheistic communism. I'm saying he loved the people that were caught in it, and he wanted to see them thawed and to know the love of Jesus Christ, that he would risk great things to be able to go to them and share the gospel. So in this week, I was reminded of something that Philip uh, sent to me quite a few years back, and it's called Preparing for the Underground Church. It's not the easiest read. I'm just going to prepare you for that. However, I want you to practice not thinking like Adam as I read this, but thinking like Christ. Now, Richard Wormbrandt has a good sense of humor, which helps. Uh, In in this, this is a very edited down version, uh, and there is a longer version of it out there, but this is a very stark version compared to the, the longer one. It still has what I would say the pithiest, meatiest portions that are applicable to us. So I'm going to read this through, and I, I think the importance of it will begin to come to the surface as we progress. If we really want to be prepared, I, I guess we could start with, do we really want to be prepared? And I would say, there's going to be a resounding response, even though we're a little terrified to answer yes. There's a resounding yes. We want it, Eric. We want to know how to live this life and to live it boldly. All right, let's listen to a man who spent 14 years in prison, who lived under communist atheism, and who had to risk everything to share the gospel in his day and age, and let him teach us how to prepare, practically prepare, to bring the truth of Jesus Christ into an ever-darkening culture. I say, This is the type of thing we want to hear. If I'd told you ahead of time what the message is on, you might have come up with an excuse like had a cough this morning. This is the type of message we will strategically get coughs to avoid. And yet, I think as you hear it, you're going to recognize that there's life in it. I want you to be happy. I want you to be thinking like the twice born. I love this message. This is the type of stuff that stirs me. You see, I no longer think like Adam. I still have the propensity to in regards to this topic. But I have a lens that is able to consider it pure joy, that is able to laugh, that is able to leap. And so even though I have still a lot more growth in this area personally, I've tasted a different mentality. Preparing for the Underground Church by Richard Wurmbrand. Part one, preparing to suffer well. Suffering cannot be avoided in the Underground Church, whatever measures are taken, but suffering should be reduced to the minimum. What happens in a country when oppressive powers take over? In some countries, the terror starts at once, as in Mozambique and Cambodia. In other places, a false sense of religious liberty follows, and then suddenly, after the necessary police force and army staff have been established, the clampdown begins. In Russia, the communists gave immediately great liberty to the Protestants in order to destroy the Orthodox. When they had destroyed the Orthodox, the turn came for the Protestants. The initial situation does not last long. During that time, they infiltrate the churches, putting their men in leadership. They find out the weaknesses of pastors. Some might be ambitious men. Some might be entrapped with the love of money. Another might have a hidden sin somewhere wherewith he may be blackmailed. They explain that they would make it known and thus put their men in leadership. Then at a certain moment, the great persecution begins. In Romania, such a clampdown happened in one day. All the Catholic bishops went to prison, along with innumerable priests, monks, and nuns. Then many Protestant pastors of all denominations were arrested. Many died in prison. 
Preparation for underground work begins by studying sufferology, martyrology. Wouldn't that be a great uh, class to take, to study suffering and martyrdom? Later, we will look at the technical side of underground work, but first of all, there must be a certain spiritual preparation for it. In a free country, to be a member of a church, it is enough to believe and to be baptized. In the church underground, this is an extremely fascinating statement, in the church underground, it is not enough to be a member in it. You can be baptized and you can believe, but you will not be a member of the underground church unless you know how to suffer. Did you guys hear that? That is like a line that just jumps off the page. In other words, oh, I'm not saying you're not a believer in Christ. I'm saying if you want to be a part of the underground church, you have to know how to suffer. You might have the mightiest faith in the world, but if you are not prepared to suffer, then when you are taken by the police, you will get two slaps and you will declare anything. So the preparation for suffering is one of the essentials of the preparation of underground work. A Christian does not panic if he is put in prison. Did you hear that line? Uh, I'm not sure how well we relate to it. A Christian does not panic if he is put in prison. For the rank and file believer, prison is a new place to witness for Christ. For a pastor, prison is a new parish. It's like a new church. It is a parish with no great income, but with great opportunities for work. Free churchgoers look at their watch. Already he has preached for 30 minutes. Will he never finish? Like last week. Already they've preached for two and a half hours. Will they ever finish? When arrested, watches are taken away from you. You have the churchgoers with you the whole week and can preach to them from morning to night. There's an exclamation mark after that. It's like, he's speaking my language. Are you serious? I could do this from morning to night? They have no choice. There have never been in the history of the Romanian or the Russian church so many conversions brought about as there have been in prison. So do not fear prison. Look upon it as just a new assignment given by God. But what about the terrible tortures which are inflicted on prisoners? What will we do about these tortures? Will we be be able to bear them? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the oppressors wish from me, to betray those around me. Hence comes the great need for preparation for suffering, which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself for it when you are already in prison. Isn't that just a strange thought? Here we are in America... And I'm reading something that says we need to prepare for suffering. What? That sounds like the big wet blanket on our life. It is too, what is too difficult to prepare yourself for it when you are already in prison. This is our preparation season. If you were going to compete in the Olympics, I would say you should train. Now, of course, you wouldn't even qualify for the Olympics, but let's imagine you could just be a walk-on. You see, if you do not train for the Olympics for years ahead in your life, then when you get to that day, you will not show well. And Christianity is about showing well in the day. When the day of testing comes, when the D-day of our soul comes, we have been prepared. Part two, you must really know Jesus. How much each each one of us can suffer depends on how much he is bound up with a cause. How dear this cause is to him, and how much it means for him. In this respect, we have had in communist countries very big surprises. There have been gifted preachers and writers of Christian books who have become traitors. The composer of the best hymnal of Romania became the composer of the best communist hymnal of Romania. Everything depends on whether we have remained in the sphere of words or if we are merged with the divine realities. God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. Theology is the truth about the truth about the truth. 
A good sermon is the truth about the truth about the truth about the truth. It is not the truth. Isn't that an interesting statement? The truth is God alone. Around this truth, there is a scaffolding of words, of theologies, and of exposition. None of these is of any help in times of suffering. It is only the truth himself who is of help. And we have to penetrate through sermons, through theological books, through everything which is words, to be bound up with the reality of God himself. I have told in the West, that's us over here, we're in the West, how Christians were tied to crosses for four days and four nights. The crosses were put on the floor and the other prisoners were tortured and made to fulfill their bodily necessities upon the faces and the bodies of the crucified ones. I have since been asked, which Bible verse helped and strengthened you in those circumstances? My answer is, no Bible verse was of any help. It is sheer cant and religious hypocrisy to say, this Bible verse strengthens me or the Bible verse helps me. Bible verses alone are not meant to help. We knew Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you pass through suffering, you realize that it was never meant by God that Psalm 23 should strengthen you. It is the Lord who can strengthen you, not the psalm which speaks of him so doing. It is not enough to have the psalm. You must have the one about whom the psalm speaks. We also knew the verse, my grace is sufficient for thee, but the verse is not sufficient. It is the grace which is sufficient and not the verse. Pastors and zealous witnesses who are handling the word as a calling from God are in danger of giving holy words more value than they really have. Holy words are only the means to arrive at the reality expressed by them. If you are united with the reality, capital R, the Lord Almighty, evil loses its power over you. It cannot break the Lord Almighty. If you only have the words of the Lord Almighty, you can be very easily broken. Part three, start practicing living without. The preparation for underground work is deep spiritualization. As we peel an onion in preparation for its use, so God must peel from us what are, what are mere words, sensations of our enjoyments in religion, in order to arrive at the reality of our faith. Jesus has told us that whosoever will follow him will have to take up their cross, and he himself showed how heavy this cross can be. We have to be prepared for this. We have to make the preparation now before we are imprisoned. In prison, you lose everything. You are undressed and given a prisoner's suit, No more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You do not have a wife or husband anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. I'm going to read that line again just so it stands out. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. I personally use an exercise. This is pretty funny, by the way. I live in the United States of America. Can you imagine what an American supermarket looks like? You find there are many delicious things. I look at everything and say to myself, I can go without this thing and that thing. This thing is very nice, but I can go without. This third thing, I can go without too. I visited the whole supermarket and did not spend one dollar. I had the joy of seeing many beautiful things and the second joy to know that I can go without. Part four, doubt will make you a traitor. I am Jewish. In Hebrew, he is a Romanian Jew, by the way, just in case, so you're not confused here. I am Jewish. In Hebrew, the language which Jesus himself spoke and in which the first revelation has been given, the word doubt does not exist. To doubt is as wrong for a man as it would be for him to walk on four legs. He is not meant to walk on four legs. A man walks erect. He is not a beast. To doubt is subhuman. To every one of us, doubts come. 
But do not allow doubts about essential doctrines of the Bible, such as the existence of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or the existence of eternal life to make a nest in your mind. Every theological or philosophical doubt makes you a potential traitor. You can allow yourself doubts while you have a nice study and you prepare sermons and you eat well or you write a book. Then you can allow yourself all kinds of daring ideas and doubts. When you are tortured, these doubts are changed into treason because you have to decide to live or die for this faith. One of the most important things about the spiritual preparation of an underground worker is the solution of his doubts. In mathematics, if you do not find the solution, you may have made a mistake somewhere. So you continue until you find out. Don't live with doubts, but seek their solution. Part five, passing the test of torture. Now to come to the very moment of torture. Torture is sometimes very painful. Sometimes it is a simple beating. We have all been spanked as children, and beating is just another spanking. Isn't that an interesting perspective? A simple beating is very easy to take. I don't know how well you guys are taking that statement. A simple beating is very easy to take. That's from someone who has been tortured many times over, and it's like, hey, guys, a simple beating, that's, that's nothing. Jesus has said we should come to him like children, which is rather like candidates for spanking. <laughs> However, with us, communists did not stop at beatings. They used very refined tortures. Now, torture, you must know, can work both ways. It can harden you and strengthen your decision not to tell the police anything. There are thieves who resist any torture and would not betray those with whom they have cooperated in theft. The more you beat them, the more obstinate they become. Or torture could just break your will. Now, I will tell you of one very interesting case, which was published by the Czech Communist Press. Novotny, who was the predecessor of Dubsek and who was a communist dictator, had arrested one of his intimate comrades, a communist leader, a convinced atheist, and a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Not only Christians, Jews or patriots were in prison. One communist arrested another and tortured him just as they would do anybody else. They arrested this communist leader and put him in a prison cell alone. Electromagnetic rays which disturbed the mind passed through his cell. A loudspeaker repeated day and night, Is your name Joseph or not Joseph? His name was not Joseph. They tried to drive him mad. Day and night, he felt that he would lose his mind. At a certain moment, he got an illumination. I have now met unmitigated evil. If communists torture a Christian, it is not absolutely evil because communists believe that they will construct an earthly paradise. Christians hinder them, so it is right to torture Christians. But when a co communist tortures a communist, it is a torture for torture's sake. There is absolutely no justification for it. But wait a little bit. Every coin has two sides. Every electric cable has two poles. If there is an unmitigated evil, against whom does this unmitigated evil fight? There must be an unmitigated good. This is God. And against him they fight. When he was called to the interrogator, he entered smiling into the room and told him that he could switch off the loudspeaker now because it had attained its result. I've become a Christian, the officer asked him. How did it happen? He told him the whole story. The officer said, wait a little bit. He called a few of his comrades and said, please repeat the story before my comrades. He repeated the story, and the captain told the other police officer, I told you that this method will not work. You have overdone it. <laughs> the devil is not almighty and all wise like God. He can make mistakes. Evil torture is an excess which can be used very well spiritually. Part six, preparing for the moment of crisis. Torture has a moment of explosion, and the torturer waits for this critical moment. Learn how to conquer doubt and to think thoroughly. 
There is always one moment of crisis when you are ready to write or pronounce the name of your accomplice in the underground work or to say where the secret printing shop is or something of that kind. You have been tortured so much, nothing counts anymore. The fact that I should have pain also does not count. Oh, let me read that again. The fact that I should not have pain also does not count. Draw this last conclusion at the stage at which you have arrived and you will see that you will overcome this one moment of crisis. It gives you an intense inner joy. You feel that Christ has been with you in that decisive moment. Jailers today are now trained and refined, aware that there is a moment of crisis. If they cannot get anything from you in that moment, then they abandon torturing. They know its continuation will be useless. There are a few more points in connection with torture. It is very important to understand what Jesus said. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for itself. I have had 14 years in prison. Brother Hopbov had 26 Wang Mingdao had 28. It seems impossible to bear long years of prison. You are not asked to bear it all at once. Do not bear even one day at a time. Bear an, bear an hour at a time. One hour of pain everybody can bear. We have had a terrible toothache, a car accident passing, perhaps, though, through untold anguish. You are not meant to bear pain more than this one present minute. What amplifies pain is the memory that I have been beaten and tortured so many times and that tomorrow they will take me again and the day after tomorrow. Tomorrow I might not be alive, or they might not be alive. Tomorrow there can be an overthrow, as in Romania. Yesterday beating is, yesterday beating is, yesterday's beating is past. Tomorrow's torture has not come yet. It's interesting, when we talk about the moment of crisis, when we look at this and you only see the extremes, okay, we're seeing prison, torture, uh, all these things. Obviously, it's hard for us as Americans to comprehend these things. We don't have a grid for this. The people we know and love, the Christians around us, have not endured these things. So to us, it feels like we're watching some kind of uh, movie that should be rated pretty high level because it's you know dealing with some graphic violence. When in actuality, this is the diet of many Christians throughout the world and throughout history. More Christians have endured this than have endured what we've had in America. The moment of crisis is just part of Christianity. It's part of what we go through. The devil, though he may not have us in a prison cell with a police guard beating us, is still laboring to get us unto doubt and crisis. And so in every trial of your faith that you go through, there's a moment of crisis. There's a moment where the devil says, give up. And that give up suddenly makes sense. It's like, yeah, God has been faithful to others, but it looks like he failed you. That is the moment of crisis for us. That is precisely what we train for now in our life. That we recognize, no matter how long this is, I will not bend. I do not care if it seems like God never came through for me. I will not deny him. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Until you reach that point in your Christianity, you are vulnerable to the moment of crisis. However, you are meant to be invulnerable to the moment of crisis now, not just then. We train for the Christian life now, and you have every bit of opportunity to learn to be excellent in your Christian walk right now. Part seven, Christ must rank highest. The Bible teaches some words very hard to take. Whosoever does not hate father, mother, child, brother, sister cannot be my disciple. These words mean almost nothing in a free country. You probably know from the Voice of the Martyrs literature that thousands of children had been taken away from their parents in the former Soviet Union because they were taught about Christ. You must love Christ more than your family. 
I'm going to read it again. It's an obvious statement, but I want you to allow the words to sink. You must love Christ more than your family. There you are before a court, and the judge tells you that if you deny Christ, you may keep your children. If not, this will be the last time you will see them. Your heart may break, but your answer should be, I love God. Nadia Sloboda left her house for four years of prison. Her children were taken from her, but she left her house singing. The children for whom the police waited with a truck to take them as she left told their singing mother, don't worry about us. Wherever they put us, we will not give up our faith. They did not. When Jesus was on the cross, he not only suffered physically, he had his mother in front of him suffering. His mother had the son suffering. They loved each other, but the glory of God was at stake, and and here any human sentiment must be secondary. Only if we take this attitude once and for all can we prepare for underground work. Only Christ, the great sufferer, the man of sorrows, must live in us. There have been cases in communist countries when communist torturers threw away their rubber truncheons with which they beat a Christian and asked, what is this halo which you have around your head? How is it that your face shines? I cannot beat you anymore. It is said of Stephen in the Bible that his face shone. We have known cases of communist torturers torturers who told the prisoners, shout loudly, cry loudly as if I would beat you so that my comrades will know that I torture you, but I cannot beat you. Thus you you would shout without anything happening to you. There are other cases when prisoners really are tortured, sometimes to death. You have to choose between dying with Christ and for Christ or becoming a traitor. What is the worth of continuing to live when you will be ashamed to look in the mirror, knowing that the mirror will show you the face of a traitor? Part 8, resisting brainwashing. One of the greatest methods is not only physical torture, it is brainwashing. We have to know how to resist brainwashing. Brainwashing exists in the free, free world too. The press, radio, and television brainwash us. There exists no motive, this is a really funny statement, there exists no motive in the world to drink Coca-Cola. You drink it because you are brainwashed. Water is surely better than Coca-Cola, but nobody advertises, drink water, drink water. (laughs) That's just a fascinating statement. No one advertises, drink water, drink water. Well, now we have bottled water, so maybe they do. If water were advertised, we would drink water. Some have driven this technique of brainwashing to its extreme. The methods vary, but brainwashing in my Romanian prison consisted essentially of this. We had to sit 17 hours on a form which gave no possibility to lean, and you were not allowed to close your eyes. For 17 hours a day, we had to hear communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, etc. Christianity is dead, Christianity is dead, Christianity is dead, etc. Give up, give up, etc. You were bored after one minute of this, but you had to hear it the whole 17 hours for weeks, months, years even, without any interruption. I can assure you, it is not easy. It is one of the worst tortures, much, much worse than physical torture. I had passed through brainwashing for over two years. Now the communists would have said that my brain was still dirty. In the same rhythm in which they said Christianity is dead, I and others repeated to ourselves, Christ alone has been dead, but he rose from the dead. We remember that we lived in the communion of saints. So when we talk about brainwashing, just as I talked about the moment of crisis, I don't know how to relate this to you to understand, but this is something that the Spirit of God can train us in now. It is a very, very real thing to me, that voice of brainwashing coming against me. I I don't know how to describe it. When I look at Paul's thorn, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, 
I, I don't know what his thorn was, obviously, it doesn't say, but boy, I have some good guesses. I had for three years before Ellerslie started a voice that constantly spoke day in, day out to me, saying, give up, you're nothing, you'll never make a difference. Over and over and over again. And you know what happened? I learned to rehearse truth to my soul constantly. God is greater. God will accomplish his ends. Sure, I'm weak. Yes, I'll agree with you on that point. But he has chosen weak things through which to reveal his strength. You see, that brainwashing will backfire on the devil and cause us to preach to our soul all the more what is, in fact, true. Some of you have been whispered to or shouted at by the devil for many years. But you have allowed that voice to continue without the proper response. The devil loves to brainwash. It's what he does. But God renews the heart and mind so that we think his thoughts and we keep our mind fixed on things above. Part nine, enduring solitude. One of the greatest problems for, our, for an underground fighter is to know how to fill up his solitude. We had absolutely no books, not only no Bible, but no books, no scrap of paper and no pencil. We never heard a noise and there was absolutely nothing to distract our attention. You looked at the walls, that was all. Now, normally, a mind under such circumstances becomes mad. I and many others, by the way, mad, for those of you that are younger, means crazy. I and many other prisoners did it like this. We never slept during the night. We slept during the day. One prayer at night is worth ten prayers during the day. The demonic forces are forces of the night, and therefore it is so important to oppose them during the night. In solitary confinement, we awoke when the other prisoners went to bed. We filled our time with a program which was so heavy we could not fulfill it. We started with a prayer, a prayer in which we traveled through the whole world. We prayed for each country, for where we knew the names of towns and men, and we prayed for great preachers. It took a good hour or two to come back. We prayed for pilots and for those on the sea and for those who were in prisons. After having traveled to the whole world, I read the Bible from memory. To memorize the Bible is very important for an underground worker. Part 10, exercising the joy of the Lord. Just to make us laugh also a little bit, I will tell you one thing which happened. Once while I lay on the few planks which were my bed, I read from memory the Sermon on the Mount, according to Luke. Remember, this is in his mind. He's reading it. I arrived at the part where it said, when you are persecuted for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice you in that day and leap for joy. You will remember that it is written like this. I said, how can I commit such a sin of neglect? Christ has said that we have to do two different things. One, to rejoice, I have done. The second, to leap for joy. I have not done. So I jumped. I came down from my bed and began to jump around. In prison, the door of a cell has a peephole through which the warden looks into the cell. He happened to look in while I jumped around, so he believed that I'd become mad. They had an order to behave very well with madmen so that their shouting and banging on the wall would not disturb the order of the prison. The guard immediately entered, quieted me down, and said, You'll be released. You can see everything will be all right. Just remain quiet. I will bring you something. He brought me a big loaf of bread. Our portion was one slice of bread a week, and now I had a whole loaf plus cheese. It was white. Never just eat cheese. First of all, admire its whiteness. It is beautiful to look upon. He brought me also sugar. He spoke a few nice words again and locked the door and left. I said, I will eat these things after I have finished my chapter from Luke. I lay down again and tried to remember where I had left off. Yes, when you are persecuted for my name's sake, rejoice and leap for joy because great is your reward. 
I looked at the loaf of bread and the cheese. Really, the reward was great. (laughs) So the next task is to think of the Bible and to meditate upon it. Every night, I composed a sermon beginning with Dear Brethren and Sisters and finishing it with Amen. After I composed it, I delivered it. I put them afterwards in very short rhymes so that I could remember them. My books with with solitary, my books with solitary, with God in solitary confinement, and if prison walls could speak, contain some of these sermons. I have memorized 350 of them. Out of bread, I made chessmen, some of them whitened with a little bit of chalk and the others gray. I played chess with myself. Never believed that Bob Fisher, we know him as Bobby Fisher, the great chessman, is the greatest chess master of the world. He won the last match with Spassky. He won eight games and lost two. I, in three years, never lost a game. I always won either with white or gray. Never, never allow your mind to become distressed because then the communists have you entirely in their hands. I'm going to read that again just because we've read a lot and I don't want you to miss this line. Never allow your mind to become distressed because then the communists have you entirely in their hands. You can put something in instead of communists if it will help. That which opposes Christ. In other words, God has given us all we need to have peace, joy, and a soul calm in the midst of the most turbulent waters. We as the church have been equipped. We now need to take the equipment and learn to use it. What we are supposed to be doing in Christianity is exercising what we know to do and doing it. Because we live in North America, we have a tendency to take the tool bag, say, that is nice, thank you for giving it to me, and never learning to use the tools. We understand that there are tools, we agree with the tools, we know that these are tools that were given us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but we have not exercised them because we haven't needed to. However, we actually do need to, even to live in this country, because this country is working to, for lack of a better term, brainwash us into a moral lassitude and a laxness of soul that causes us to not be on fire and fervent for the purpose of Jesus Christ and his glory. So whether or not we're in a prison cell, we are being worked on. There is a power and it's evil that is seeking to diminish the truth of Jesus. And he's doing a good job. And he's done a pretty good job in us. And I would say to the degree that we know we have let down in this exercise of our faith, let's pick it up again. Let's repent and believe. And let's enter into this battle with an intentionality to allow the Spirit of God to sanctify us, to prepare us, to make us strong. Smiling, shouting, rejoicing, singing Christians. Never allow your mind to become distressed because then the communists have you entirely in their hands. Your mind must be continually exercised. It must be alert. It must think. It must, everyone according to his abilities, compose different things, etc. I have told you all these things because they belong to the secrets of the underground worker when he suffers. May God bless you, Richard Wormbrand. That is a gift. I know for some of us it's hard to receive something like that as a gift, but it's not something that I could give the same way he can give it. Let's just admit it. Eric, have you suffered in prison? No. You see, to understand from someone who has gone before us and probably one of the greatest heroes of the faith 
that has ever lived. I mean, this man is a marvel to my soul, and I've studied many Christians throughout history. What amazes me about this man is his genuine love for the lost. I don't know if you've ever heard the story. I've probably mentioned it different times. I've, I know so many stories about Richard Wormbrand because I've spent so much time listening to him, studying him. But there was one time when Nikolai Ceausescu, if any of you know, he used to be the uh, dictator of Romania, the, sort of like the, the king, the emperor of Romania, and he was a savage man that hated Christians. And he literally plundered the nation, built himself a palace, and left everyone else to be destitute. And the people hated this man. And when he fell into their control because of the revolution, and they had him in their possession to destroy him and to inflict their hatred upon him, Richard Wormbrandt pleaded with the nation, though he was suffering because of him in prison, pleaded with the nation to show mercy on him. He was, the way he describes this, he's merely a little boy who was never loved. Please show mercy on him. Who does that? Who responds like that to the ones that have inflicted pain on you? A Christian does. That's the way we should be responding. We need what he had inside of him, inside of us. So there's a scene in Tortured for Christ that has just keeps coming back to me. And that is Richard Wormbrandt. Most of us think about him enduring torture. We don't ever really ponder what led to it in the first place. Here he is. The Russians have come into his country and Christianity is basically in the outlawed state. And yet he cares so deeply about these soldiers that are atheists. They've had nothing else. They've never heard about Jesus. And so the only way oftentimes to get to them was to enter into their world. And there's a scene in the movie, is, if you see it, you'll, you'll understand, but they had stolen all the watches. Basically, the only watches that existed in Romania uh, were all held by the Russian soldiers, and then they would sell them back to the Romanians. <laughs> Same watch. It was your watch yesterday. Now you have to buy it back from the Russians. And so Richard Rembrandt would go into the barracks to buy a watch, but actually not to buy a watch, to share the gospel. And he would risk everything to do it, going into the soldiers' barracks to share the gospel. Now, I know that... That's in Romania that happened way out there. However, here's what it says to me. There's a house across the street. Would I be willing to go into that house to share the gospel and risk my life? And you go, no, I wouldn't be risking my life. He would, he would go to places that literally could cost him everything. That's what missions has always been. You don't just go where it's easy and there would be no penalty if you get caught. That isn't the logic of the Christian. It's where the gospel is most needed. So what about the soldiers' barracks across the street? I remember just pulling up in my driveway this week and looking at the house across the street and recognizing, all right, God, give me the same heart and the same passion to reach them that Richard Wormbrand had to reach Romanian sol the Russian soldiers. That's what I need. I see I need it. Intellectually, I have it but I'm missing something in this region, God. It's something that compels me. Paul says that he was compelled. The only thing that will carry you into danger is something compelling you. You can't not go. And I want to not be able to not go, if that makes sense. I don't want to have the ability to not go. I want to be compelled to do that which is obvious in front of me. Preparing our families for suffering. 
So as I've been going through this, you know, Hudson went with me to the, the movie on Monday night. It was, a, it was a really special thing for the two of us to share. And it's, it's a movie that I'm probably glad that I didn't have my younger kids, uh, younger than Hudson, who's 13, go to it, if that gives you any indication for how you make a decision in watching it. At the same time, I want to have a discussion with my kids. We've had it at basic levels, but just like we're having this discussion today, this is not the easy, how do you ever bring this up? How do we ever talk about this as the church other than just talking about it? But how do I talk about it with my kids? If daddy, who's going to get dragged away? If something turns in this culture, who in this church do you think is going to get dragged away? Yeah, you can start guessing. Uh, I know who it's going to be. And any other guy in here that has the name pastor associated with it, that's when all of the pastors are going to be like, just call me an elder. I'm just an elder. Elders are not the same. But that term in our culture means something responsible one. You're responsible for this. So they figure if they can take the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And so it's always been the tactic. We need to be strong for when shepherds are removed. My kids need to be strong for when daddy is removed. My wife needs to be strong for when her husband is removed. How do we have those conversations before? And how do I communicate to my wife and to my kids that Jesus is first? And that's how I love them well. I can only serve them to the degree that I put Jesus as the highest. There's a scene, and Hudson brought it up during our prayer, prayer time uh, on Tuesday night as a group, and many, many of you were here and heard it. What stood out to him was the father that was in prison. It wasn't Richard Wurmbrand. It was a different man that they just had a little uh, quick shot of who was thrown into prison. And to break him and to get him to talk, they brought in his son. And hung him up next to the father and started beating him in front of the father. And the father starts saying, I'll share with you whatever you want. And what was so moving about the scene is, his, is the son saying, Father, do not give them what they want. Keep preaching Jesus. Keep preaching Jesus. Do not be a traitor. And so they killed the son right in front of him. I mean, I know. I can't believe I'm sharing this stuff just in church. This is not the normal diet of an American church. However, for Hudson... That was what stood out to him out of the whole movie because he's identifying with the son. Of course, I'm identifying with the father. It's very, each of us is going to fall into some category there, but we need to have both shoes on. We need to recognize, I don't want you to deny Christ even if it costs me my life. I want my kids to look back at me and say, Daddy, you do for Jesus what he deserves. I don't care what happens to me. I'm a Christian. He'll take care of me. You do what you need to do. I need my wife to begin to communicate that to me. I need to communicate it with them. We need to communicate it with each other. You need to know I'm not going to turn traitor. I'm not going to betray you guys. I need to know that you're not going to turn traitor and betray us. In other words, we're Christians. Let's be the underground church even though we don't technically have to be right now. Let's begin to function as the true church because that's all the underground church is. It's the true church. It's the wheat. It's the sheep. It's the virgins with oil in their lamps. It's those that do Christianity. It's those that are actually living it and not just esteeming it. So I, this is my meditation this morning. This is our final scripture. This is to the church in Smyrna. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
There's a lot in that. And of course, it's a very specific church, very specific time period. But there's some richness in this. And that line of be faithful unto death has been very significant for me as I've meditated upon it this morning. But be full of that faith, that confidence in your Christ, that knowing of who he is, even unto death. You see, there isn't a point, a moment of crisis where we as Christians turn. I, I was given last night, I've been going through a pretty intense test as of late. It is not relented. I, I, I keep sort of assuming that I've reached the end and the, the test will sort of end and it's kept on. And in that, there's a moment of crisis that says, how many days do you continue in such an extremity before you start taking things into your own hands and coming up with different solutions other than faith? Is there a point? And I would say, there isn't a point. I was using the issue, you know, the illustration with Leslie of if I was commissioned by God to go out and gather a hundred shucks, husks of corn, what was that? I don't know what they're called. Shucks? Is that what they're called? Husks of corn? Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about, though, corn. Uh, and so I had my satchel next to me, and one, two, three. And I'm going through a trial. Why? Because it's getting heavier and heavier. I'm doing what I know to do. And as I'm collecting it, it's getting heavier and heavier to the point where I get to 99. I'm at a moment of crisis. I don't know that I can go anymore. What if I just drop it all and leave it in the field and go back? What do I have? Did I actually collect or did I not? The same is true with faith. You could believe, you could believe, you could believe, but if you fail in the point of testing when you're putting that hundredth husk into the satchel, into the bag, that's what God wants unto the end. I want us to learn how to carry things through unto full maturity and not abort them prematurely. It's called a miscarriage where you have been given life, but you don't carry it through into its end. Spiritually, it's very, very important that we learn to carry life all the way through. So God has given us a trust. Let's carry it. For some of you, you may be at a moment of crisis right now where there's some other options that you could be staring at, something that might be a reasonable solution to your quagmire, to your challenge, other than trusting God. And I'm here to tell you, practice right now, being faithful unto the end. God will prove faithful, and he will give you a crown of life. Life always comes. You have to be a believer. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.